Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There is a first time for everything. We know who the first man on the moon was. Edmund Hillary was the first to the top of Mount Everest. The first movie with talking in it was The Jazz Singer and so on. I started thinking about first the other day for some reason, so I started looking things up. The first McDonald's was in San Bernardino, California. The first guy to literally walk around the world on foot was a dude named Dave Kunist. It took him four years to walk 14,452 miles. The first person to be killed in an automobile accident was Bridget Driscoll of Surrey, England. In 1896, she was hit by a car that was traveling at four miles per hour. And the first porn film, glad you asked, Bedtime for the Bride, 1895. Now, we can get weirder. The first thing ever sold on eBay was a broken laser pointer for $14. The first video on YouTube is actually still up there. It's called Me at the Zoo. The first person with a Facebook account outside of the company who wasn't a friend of Mark Zuckerberg was a guy from India named Sashin Kumar. The more I looked at famous firsts, the more I started wondering about firsts in music. Who was the first person to perform on a guitar run through an amplifier? What was the first song downloaded from iTunes? Who was the first to drop an intentional F-bomb on record? And what was the first song to fade out instead of having a definite ending? You see where I'm going with this, right? So I started compiling a list of firsts in music, and then I set out to find some answers which I did. Prepare yourself. This could be the first time you hear about this stuff. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. That's Pulp with Do You Remember the First Time from 1994. I'm Alan Cross, and this program is all about the first times for a whole lot of different things. It's a collection of arcane facts that I hope will make you go, wow, that's cool. I didn't know that. So let's get started. The foundation of rock is the electric guitar. Who was the first person to perform with a guitar that ran through an amplifier? The answer is a jazz player named Jack Miller in 1932. He had a gig at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles, and he had a brand new Rickenbacker electro guitar, which, as far as anybody can tell, was the first true electric guitar, which is to say it was an instrument with a pickup 
that translated the vibration of the strings into an electrical signal. It was invented by a guy named George Beauchamp and an engineer called Adolf Rickenbacker in 1931. We know that Jack was the guy who first did a gig with an electric guitar and an amplifier because he's told us. He wrote a series of articles for a jazz magazine called Downbeat detailing exactly what he did. And within a year of his gig, people were playing lead guitar through an amp, competing with the loud horns of big band orchestras. The first person to take an electric guitar solo on a record seems to be a dude named Eddie Durham. This was 1935, and the song was called Hitting the Bottle. Let's have a listen. Now first take a bottle, an old empty bottle. Then you find a level place, pouring floor to place that bottle. Next you start to toddle, keep watch on the bottle. Then you step around a bit, be careful not to hit that bottle. Back for a second to Jack Miller and his Rickenbacker. The company still makes guitars today. Everybody from John Lennon to Tom Petty to The Edge to Noel Gallagher to Paul Weller have a Rickenbacker someplace in their collection. One of the most famous from the alternative world is Peter Buck of R.E.M. The distinctive sound of these guitars was very important to the whole R.E.M. vibe from the very beginning. R.E.M. with Peter Buck playing his Rickenbacker guitar, an instrument with an ancestry that goes all the way back to the first electric guitar in 1931. Let's look at some other important firsts. The first ever audio recorded dates back to April the 9th of 1860, we think. This is when a French inventor named Edward Leon Scott de Martinville, actually he was a stenographer and he wanted to see what sound looked like, he came up with this device called the phonoautograph, which scribbled a waveform on a piece of paper when you spoke into it. That gave you a recording, but because it was only a drawing, there was no way to play it back. Until 2008, when that waveform could be read using laser scanning. You may have heard of the recordings of this, and I know it sounds like a woman or a child, but they got it wrong when they were trying to sync the speed of the waveform to the real world. This is actually Scott DeMartinville, and if we pitch correct it, it sounds like this. The first audio ever recorded and played back was by Thomas Edison, who recited Mary Had a Little Lamb into his new talking machine invention in 1877. The original recording doesn't exist. Edison destroyed it as part of his experiments. But it sounded something like this. The uh, first words I spoke in the original phonograph. A uh, little piece of practical poetry. Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. What was the first commercially available recording? It wasn't what you think. It was a tiny cylinder, an Edison cylinder, inserted into a talking doll that went on sale for the insane price of $10 in November of 1888. And she recites Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. The oldest playable musical recording 
is thought to be an Edison cylinder of 500 musicians and 4,000 singers performing Handel's Israel and Egypt, which was made at London's Crystal Palace. This is also from 1888. The first record, a rotating disc, was made in 1889. Emil Berliner, the inventor that came up with the idea of a flat rotating disc in the first place, was the guy that made the first record as well. He recited a German ballad, and although it was later destroyed, a sound historian was able to recreate the audio by scanning a picture of that record that he found in a magazine dating to 1890. The first commercial recordings were released in the 1890s. We're not entirely sure who was the first to issue a commercial record because this was such a niche thing to do at the time, but we do know that this was one of the biggest early hits. The Latin Soul by Mr. George W. Jump for the Columbia Phonograph Company of New York and the Paris. Now we can talk about the first record album. This needs a little background. Back in the early days of recorded music, discs could only hold about four minutes per side, and that was pushing it. If you had a longer performance, say a, a symphony, you had to break it up into three and four minute chunks. And this often meant that the performance had to stretch over multiple discs. Okay, fine. Those discs were gathered together and packaged in a book. And the pages in this book were sleeves. Each sleeve contained a disc. This reminded people of a photo album. You know, a book that contained a collection of pictures. Therefore, it wasn't much of a stretch to call this collection of records a record album. The first record album was a four-disc set by a long-gone label called Odeon Records. They released a version of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite as an album in April 1909. It cost 16 shillings. All right, so how much was that? Well, if you want to convert that into today's dollars, we're looking at something that cost just over 100 bucks. The 78 RPM record was the main recording format until 1948, when the 12-inch 33 and a third album was released by Columbia Records. The first LP ever released was from the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York performing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto in E minor. This is from that actual record. RCA Records responded to Columbia's LP with the 7-inch 45 RPM single. It was unveiled in March of 1949, and amongst the first 45s ever released was this from Eddie Arnold called Texarkana Baby. Do I love her, Lordy love? Her pappy came from Texas and her ma from Arkansas. I'm twisted around her finger like a little... People often ask me about the first rock and roll record, but we're going to pass on that because rock and roll wasn't something that just, you know, happened. It evolved out of a lot of different songs from a bunch of different genres, from a wide array of different artists over a number of years. So there is no definitive first rock record. The first pre-recorded cassettes, I can tell you about. They first appeared in 1966. Again, there was no one first because a large number of titles were all issued on the same day. 
Same thing with the 8-track. When they hit the market in 1966, 175 titles all came out at once. All right, so what about the first album to appear on compact disc? Okay, we've, we've got some dispute here. The first album to be transferred to CD for demonstration purposes was a Bee Gees record. In 1981, their album Living Eyes was used on TV and radio as a way of introducing the world to compact discs. The first commercially available album, uh, that's more dispute. Whatever they were, we do know the date they were made. August 17th, 1982. That's when the first CDs, destined for consumers, rolled off the line in a factory just outside of Hanover in what was then West Germany. But what CD came out first? Well, some say it was a classical recording of Strauss's An Alpine Symphony, a performance conducted by Herbert von Karajan. Others insist it was The Visitors by ABBA. Whatever, it probably was one of those two. Or maybe it's Billy Joel's 52nd Street. It went on sale in Japan in October 1982, and it might have beat those other two to the street, but nobody really seems to know. At first, all CDs came out of either Germany or Japan because there were only two manufacturing plants in the entire world. Later, when more factories came online, more CDs started to be produced. And apparently, the first CD pressed in North America was Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. That would have been 1984. Here's a good one. What was the first song ripped to MP3 for pirating purposes? It was 1996, and a group of geeks calling themselves Compress de Audio, or CDA for short, started ripping CDs and making them available for free online. And after digging through ancient internet archives, it looks like that the first three songs ripped for illegal file-sharing purposes were, number three, Black Hole Sun from Soundgarden, number two, Bulls on Parade by Rage Against the Machine, and number one, until it sleeps from Metallica. What we think might have been the first song ripped to MP3 and then uploaded for illegal file sharing. Here are some more firsts. When Apple was developing the iPod, what was the first song loaded into the new device? This, a 2000 track by an Italian producer named Spiller. The track is Groovejet, and it was the first song transferred to a prototype iPod in Cupertino that year. And here's one more bit of Apple trivia. What was the first song downloaded from iTunes? The store went online on January 9th, 2001. And while it is impossible to determine what song was first, I mean, tens of thousands of people hit the store at the same time, so you can see the problem. We do know that at the end of that first day, January 9th, 2001, this song from U2 was downloaded more than any other.
the most downloaded song on the first day the iTunes Music Store opened for business. And just to finish off that thought, the most downloaded album that day was Sea Change by Beck. There are plenty more firsts to talk about, and when we come back, we'll talk about the first time somebody intentionally dropped an F-bomb on record. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on. This is the Ongoing History Book of Firsts, and here are a few more examples of the kind of thing that we're going on about. The first song certified to have sold a million copies was a song called My Blue Heaven from Gene Austin in 1927. Day is ending, birds are wending, back to the shelter of each little nest they love. That record went on to sell 12 million copies. Here's one more. The first gold record award went to the Glenn Miller Orchestra in 1941 for this million-plus seller. Pardon me, boy. Is that the Chattanooga juju? Yes, yes. Track 29. That gold record started a trend where awards were given for sales milestones. In 1956, RCA presented one to Elvis Presley for selling one million copies of his single Don't Be Cruel. The following year, Harry Belafonte was the recipient of the first gold album for selling a million copies of something called Calypso. In 1958, the Recording Industry Association of America decided to formalize everything. They announced that every single or album that achieved more than a million dollars in sales, not copies, sales, would be a gold record. And this only applied to the United States, of course. Awards were based on dollar sales until 1976, when things were reformalized. A gold album in America meant that it had sales of 500,000 copies. And then there was a new thing called a Platinum Award, which meant it had sold a million copies in the U.S. And the first Platinum record? That was awarded to Iron Butterfly for Inagata De Vida. The first Platinum single was Disco Lady by Johnny Taylor. But those two awards weren't enough because so many people were buying records. Multi-platinum awards were introduced in 1984. And then, in 1999, they came up with a Diamond Award, which meant sales of 10 million copies. In both cases, there were multiple simultaneous recipients, so there was no single first. Oh, and one more. The first compact disc to sell more than a million copies was Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. That happened in 1985. Now let's talk about the first time somebody dropped an F-bomb on record. Now, today it's a common thing, but in 1964... Nobody was swearing on record, or at least intentionally. When it comes to unintentional F-sharps, we can look at the Kinks song, You Really Got Me. Apparently, there was some anger in the studio during the take that resulted in that record. Dave Davies didn't like the look he got from his brother Ray, so he said something under his breath, and you kind of hear the utterance 
if you listen very, very closely just before the guitar solo. I can't hear it, but there are those who are positive that it's there. Same thing with John Lennon on Hey Jude. Someone, maybe John, maybe Paul, hits a bum note at about 2 minutes and 57 seconds into the song. We hear somebody saying, whoa, and then something unintelligible in the mix. Those who were there say it's John going effing hell, or maybe it was Paul. We're not quite sure. All right, fine, but what about a deliberate, purposeful F-bomb? That honor belongs to a group called The Fugs. That's spelled F-U-G-S. Their debut album from 1965, which was called The Fugs' First Album, featured a song called CIA Man. Now, let me play it for you, and please excuse the bleeps. There were still rules against this kind of thing on the radio all these years later. So there are the Fugs with CIA Man, a recording made in 1965, which, when you think about it, really doesn't sound that out of place here in the 21st century, does it? And that, as far as we know, is the first time anyone anywhere in the world dropped the F-bomb on a rock and roll record. Deliberately. See what you can learn from this show? Now this, who was the first person to come up with the idea of cover artwork for a record? Now, way back when, and this is before World War II, the artwork for records was really dull. Just usually a line of text or maybe some kind of generic thing. Maybe just a brown paper wrapper. That was it. It wasn't until 1938 that original graphics were designed for the sleeve of a record. It was for a recording by the Broadway composers Rogers and Hart. The record was called Smash Song Hits. The artwork was created by a 23-year-old designer named Alex Steinweiss. He convinced the executives at Columbia Records that some fancy artwork would be good for sales. And boy, did it work. And other labels started copying Columbia, and sales for records went crazy, and records have had original artwork ever since. Let's ponder the legacy of Alex Steinweiss on the world of music while we listen to something from an album that has very famous artwork. We'll get into what we actually see on the cover of OK Computer, after we hear this from Radiohead. Radiohead and Karma Police from OK Computer. Now cast your imagination to what we see on the front cover of that album. In case you can't remember, it's a picture of an on-ramp leading onto a highway. It's, it's just a picture of a painting, right? Well, no, it's actually a real place. Somebody on Reddit was able to track this picture down to a very exact location. It's the eastbound junction of Interstate 84 and Interstate 91 in Hartford, Connecticut, just before the highway crosses the Connecticut River. Not only that, this same Redditor determined that the picture was taken from the window of a nearby Hilton Hotel on August 26, 1996, which was one of the last shows Radiohead played in America before they returned to the UK to record the album. Some people have a lot of time to spend on this sort of thing. And, and try to get that deep with an MP3. You just can't do it. Next question. Who decided that fading out a song on a record was better than just ending it? Now, fades have always bothered me a little bit. Couldn't the composer or the performers figure out a way to end a song properly? 
But this has actually been going on for a long, long time. In 1772, Joseph Hayden wrote Symphony 45, which was nicknamed the Farewell Symphony. It ended with all the musicians on stage leaving one by one until there were just two violins playing. Not exactly a uniform fade-out, but you get the idea. Then we can skip to September 29, 1918. British composer Gustav Holst had the premiere of his orchestral suite called The Planets. The instructions for the performance are actually quite complicated. The last movement is called Neptune. We hadn't discovered Pluto then, so Neptune was the last planet. And Let's not get into this whole business about Pluto not being a planet, but anyway. Holst stated that the women's chorus was to be placed in a room off to the side of the stage where they could be heard but not seen by the audience. When the final bar of the performance was reached, the women were to sing that bar over and over again as the door to this room and the audience was slowly and quietly closed, and the result was a gradual fade-out of the music. When it comes to songs fading out on recordings, there are a number of possible answers. There's an 1894 Berliner disc of a fife and drums corps playing Yankee Doodle Dandy that fades into nothing, and the only way that that could have been accomplished is to have the band move away from the recording equipment until they couldn't be heard. Back then, there was no way to turn the volume down on a recording electronically. In fact, nothing back then had anything resembling a volume control. Everything was mechanical. If you wanted a phonograph to play back music more quietly, you placed a ball of fabric in the acoustic horn that served as a speaker. That ball of fabric was called a sock. And this is the origin of the phrase, stick a sock in it. Seriously. For songs that were the first to be artificially faded out, that's hard to say. Maybe it was a 1930 song called Beyond the Blue Horizon from George Olson. Or maybe it was Old Man Harlem by the Dorsey Brothers, 1933. Listen. By the 1950s, we'd graduated to magnetic tape and modern recording techniques. So fading a song became as simple as sliding or turning a volume control called a fader down to zero. Since the 1950s, Performers, producers, and engineers have used the fade-out as a way of bringing a song to a close. Think about the long sing-along fade-away of the Beatles' Hey Jude, for example. In fact, I bet you more than half of all rock songs ever recorded before the alternative era were fade-outs. One of the legacies of punk and new wave was the fact that the fade-out became shunned. I mean, think about it. Pearl Jam, Nirvana, a ton of other punk bands and alternative bands all have songs that end. Proper beginnings, proper endings. But the fade-out is still used by some people. Here's a rare example from the alt-rock world. It's the White Stripes and Icky Thunk. Jack and Meg White carrying on the tradition of fading out a song, something that can be traced back apparently more than 300 years now we're going to turn our attention to the internet. Who was the first band online? And who performed the first netcast? I have the answers. They're weird, and they're coming up next. This is the ongoing history book of firsts. We're looking at the first times people did something that's now commonplace in music. Now, today, every band is online. But who was the first? Like a lot of what we've been talking about, the answer to this one is a bit tricky. Back in 1992, the internet was still a place for scientists and computer wonks. 
It would be a few years before the World Wide Web was ready for prime time, but this didn't mean those who were building the net couldn't have some fun. In 1990, a graphic designer at CERN, the massive particle physics facility in Europe, decided to form a group. Her name was Michelle De Janeiro, and she recruited three female co-workers, and they formed a band, a singing group they called Les Horeb Cernets, and they started singing at parties and staff functions and events for the scientists. One of those scientists was named Tim Berners-Lee, and after seeing the Cernets perform at a party in 1992, he asked if he could publish a picture of the group on this new information system he had just invented. He called it the World Wide Web. He scanned a picture of the Cernets, and he posted it on the world's first website, info.cern.ch. And that's how the Cernets not only became the first band on the internet, but their image was also the first picture ever posted on the internet. Here's a sample of the Cernets. You always promise, but you never date me. I try to fax, but it's busy always. Les Horib Cernets, the first band on the internet. Not their music, but a picture of them, and that counts. All right, well, what about the first band to make their music available online? Well, it's hard to nail down the very first, but we do know that a California band called Death Specula was one of the first 10 bands on something called the Internet Underground Music Archive. This was launched by some computer nerds at the University of California at Santa Cruz in 1992. That may have been the very first online repository of music. And we'll come back to Death Specula in just a sec. The first big band to make a song digitally downloadable was Aerosmith. On June 27, 1994, they released a song called Head First. It was three minutes and 14 seconds long, and with the internet speeds of the day, it took up to 90 minutes to bring down all 4.3 megabytes. All right? Well, what about the first netcast of a musical performance? People want to debate this, but I actually have the definitive answer. The Rolling Stones will tell you that it was them. On November 18, 1994, they dumped about 20 minutes of a performance of their concert at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas onto the internet, and they claimed to be the first band in cyberspace. But, not so fast. A lot of people say it was a band from Seattle called Sky Christ Mary. Two weeks before the Stones' performance, they partnered with a company called Starwave to give a live performance. This was also the same time that they became the first band to create their own CD-ROM, which was called Coconut Soup and Other Advertisers. But maybe it wasn't Sky Cries Mary either. It might have been Death Specula. They did something live to the net on August 3rd, 1994 from the University of California in Santa Cruz, home of the Internet Underground Archive. They started their set with a song they called Internet Band, which was a takeoff of the grand funk song American Band. I wish there was a recording of it. If there is, I can't find it. But hold on. The earliest performance that anyone can document is an event that happened on June 24, 1993, more than a year before Death Specula did their thing. This is when a band called Severe Tire Damage played a gig on the patio of Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center in California, and this gig was broadcast onto something called the Internet Multicast Backbone. This performance was seen and heard by other proto-internet geeks as far away as Australia, the video was terribly slow, terribly choppy. The audio was awful, very lo-fi, but it worked. It was a landmark event when it came to broadcasting entertainment on the internet. Here is what severe tire damage sounded like. This is a track called Carcinoma from an album entitled 
Who cares? Can't take the pressure, can't make it quit. I used to wear my hat, but now it just don't fit. Gonna do some damage, then I'll do some more. Black injector surgery to clean up the floor. Yeah, I got something in my brain. Severe Tire Damage, the group that has gone down in history as the first band to broadcast a gig on the internet. June 24th, 1993. Oh, one more thing about them. Remember the, remember the Rolling Stones netcast in November of 1994? Severe Tire Damage realized that the channel the Stones planned to use for their performance was open to anyone. So before and after the Stones' 20-minute netcast, Severe Tire Damage played sets. So they simultaneously opened for the Stones and had the Stones open for them. Clever. Let me lay a few more things on you. What was the first alt-rock album to win a Grammy? If you're old enough, you'll remember that alternative albums weren't even considered for Grammys for years. It wasn't until 1991 that the genre had its own category. The first nominees were Kate Bush, The Replacements, World Party, and Laurie Anderson. And the winner was Sinead O'Connor for her I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got album. What was the first grunge album to debut at number one on the album charts? No, it wasn't Nevermind from Nirvana. It was actually Super Unknown from Soundgarden. They were also the first grunge band to sign a major label record deal. One more. Pretty much everybody knows what the first video on MTV was when they debuted in 1981. It was Video Killed the Radio Star for the Buggles. But what was the first video shown on Much Music? It was The Enemy Within from Rush. Oh, bonus fact. What was the second video played on MTV? Which is a great trivia question. It was actually You'd Better Run by Pat Benatar. You're welcome. There's all kinds of stuff like this waiting for you every day at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. There's also a newsletter, which you can subscribe for. It's free. It'll appear in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern Time every single day. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.